your name correctly for me <laughs> well it's the most common name in the history of names michael s williams <laughs> when i did some research on you before we met up and i noticed on your website actually you used your middle name also yeah 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 that's a uh, shiroid yeah when i was a kid i used to get picked on because people used to say why is your middle name some name we've never heard of and i said well because that's a name that my parents gave me so that's what i'm gonna what i'm gonna use and so my personal website yeah michael shiroidwilliams.com my mother says she picked that name my dad says he did not and so when your mom picks a name you, you know you stick with it certainly now, you are based in Raleigh, correct? Yeah, the Triangle area. So I, I tell people, well, my wife and I live on the county line, the Wake County, Durham County line, but I work in about eight counties in the state of North Carolina pretty consistently. So doing projects all over, but yeah, I'm based in the Triangle area. Okay. My first question that I'd like to get sort of off going is sort of like, how did you even get to be creative so like were your parents creative did you did you have some great teachers like what got you on the path of sort of coming down the creative industries when i was born on may 18th at some point in the 80s it was about 11 something in at night i think it was 11 19 p.m i was a creative now my create creative nature is not like an artist or a, a musician or any kind of performer, I like data and information, and I want to find ways to share that data and information, whatever that data and information is. I'm just somebody who's extremely curious. And so for me, the creativity is how to take data points, data sets, and make it so anybody can understand it. You don't have to like what you understand. I just want you to understand it. And so that's where the creativity comes from. I don't have an art background. I did want to be an architect for about an hour when I was seven. Me too. And then math, I was just like, this is dumb. Like, I don't want to use my brain that way. And so I decided to use my brain to try to solve problems in a way that would take data and creatively share it. Okay. Then now, now explain to me the relationship between that and what you're doing currently. I'll tell you a great example. We're in Wilmington, North Carolina. When I was eight years old, my parents and I were at Wrightsville Beach, and I asked my parents, and I said, look, why does this, why does the air here different? We come here every summer, twice a year. Why is the air different in this place? And they told me something about a, a massacre that happened in 1898. Now, I'm eight years old, and I said, well, what about it? And they said, well, let's have crab legs for dinner and we'll talk about it. So that's a lot of heavy information. And I say, fast forward all these years and I'm saying, well, how do I take this information and package it in a way that anybody can understand it and not only understand it, but I can get them to pull down their walls of denial or their walls of like not wanting to hear it because it is so heavy. So that's where people call it social justice or whatever. I just call it Data sharing, that's all it is. And when you understand your history, especially in this state, North Carolina, you understand a lot about the world and you understand a lot about why things are the way they are because you know that something in 1898 where a fairly elected multiracial government was overthrown because essentially white elites, Democrats at the time, 
did not like it and were upset going back 30 years or so. And it just opens up all these like tentacles that you want to go down, all these roads you want to go down. So that's how I got here today. I so want to get into this topic, but I want to put a connection between like your creative endeavors and this, these ideas. So like you have helped to produce a film and you've been a curator and you've done other works around the region in the arts, though you don't define yourself as an artist. Um, so like, how did those all come about? And then we'll come back to the the 1898 stuff so i am a guy who went to college and uh, did media you know studied media journalism and my degree is actually in english and i was a few credits short of like a history degree a double major too because i'm a nerd like that and my mom my late mother for the first half of her career was a civics teacher so i was learning all of this stuff i mean i told you the story from when i was eight years old so it's like as a journalist as a person in journalism i'm like oh, we're supposed to give people the whole story, the full truth. People can make whatever determinations they want. And I got tired of seeing, specifically in North Carolina, gerrymandering and all that kind of stuff and the redrawing of districts and voter su suppression efforts. And I watched the, the Reverend Barber out of Goldsboro where I grew up. And he's he was used to be the head of the NAACP in North Carolina. Well, he started the Moral Monday marches. And I'm, you know, in journalism, so I'm seeing this, you know, on Mondays, these people marching for these. And I'm like, we should be doing more of this. And I take I go back to college when I was at North Carolina Central University in Durham, which I chose because of the history of Durham and Black Wall Street. All of these connections. Now, think about this. So I say we don't learn about the Haytide District in the school curriculum in North Carolina. We don't learn what Black Wall Street is and all these other places across the country. So fast forward to 2016. We are through the Obama years, and it was July 4th weekend. Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, both had fatal interactions with law enforcement in different states. And Philando's had his daughter in the, in the back seat of the car. And I said, okay, this is enough. Why aren't we having productive conversations that lead to actions? Now, I've been doing things in art, party, throwing events, parties, but nothing around this type of data sharing. It's just like, oh, there's a great artist that did something. Why don't we have an event and there's wine and cheese and people can buy it, right? I got a call from an organization that I had a relationship with for about 15 years. And the new, the new ED asked me and a, a local professor in town at St. Augustine's University, Linda Dallas, these communities are going through these things. What, what can what can the arts do? And so Linda Dallas and I said, well, we should curate an art exhibition. Now, ask me my experience with art prior to that point. Michael, what were your experiences with art prior to that point? I grew up going to plays and opera and museums, you know, like most middle class kids. But I, di I didn't care. I was just bored out of my mind. But at that point, I said, there's all these talented black artists and artists of color who can help convey what we're all feeling right now in these moments. They should be the ones telling this story. So I'm just a dude who wants to organize them telling these stories. And so the formula that all of my art exhibitions and my programs have more than 25 since 2016, here's art. Here's the data we want you to learn, and here's programs to help you unpack it. 
Here's programs to give you tools and resources and ideas of what to go do with the information. I'm not telling you what to do. I just want you to be equipped to make the best decisions you can. All of this is happening as I go through a life crisis of sorts. My mother passed away unexpectedly in 2013. My wife and I, our child is seven months old. It's the best time of my life. My daughter, my mom always wanted a, a daughter. And so she's got this granddaughter. Life is great. 10 days before her birthday, she passes away unexpectedly in her sleep. And wait, just to clarify, your daughter. No, my 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 mother. Okay. My great. mother. Was like... Yeah. Yeah. And I have so much guilt because I was supposed to talk to my mom the night she died, but we were coming back from a Christmas party. We got a seven month old. And I said, Well, I'll call mom in the morning because we're gonna make holiday plans because her birthday is the twenty seventh of December, two days after Christmas. So we all we did do this dance every year. And I said I'll call in the morning and I didn't. Why is that important? Because I go down a personal spiral like no other that I had ever gone through before and uh, made a lot of bad decisions and choices and people I was, you know, spending time with. And if, if you and I were the only ones left at like a bar, I don't know you. What are you doing? You know, and we're going to because I needed just anybody who wasn't somebody who cared about me. To, to stop me from like going down these rabbit holes. And then when Philando, when I watched that video of Philando Castro getting shot and his kid in the back seat, a light bulb went off in my head. And I hadn't grieved, I hadn't processed my mother's death. That light bulb went off and I said, holy crap, I'm not doing anything to help my community or the community at large, which is the thing my mother had been preaching to me since I was eight years old, telling me about 1898 in Wilmington. And I said to myself, I'm screwing up my life. I don't talk to my wife. I'm a bad husband. I'm a bad son. I'm a bad friend. What is going on? And I, and at that point I said, okay, let me channel my mother. And my mother would tell me, you are creative, so use that to share this data. And so at that point, get that call from Visual Art Exchange. We do that first black-on-black -black exhibition. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to still be in media, but I'm going to do this thing. And we started doing it and doing it. And I started having these conversations with artists. And uh, I remember, I won't say this artist's name, very, very talented brother, though. We were sitting in a room with two other artists, and they were in grad school at the time. And I'm just asking them about the game. Like, how does this work? Like, why don't you get, like, tell me how it works. And when they told me, well, sometimes we don't get paid for exhibitions because, you know, we get to be in their space. And like that's sort of the trade-off. That's how it works sometimes. And, and my brain said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because you are the core and the key to what the institutions do. Agreed. But that, that is an industry standard even for you know, if, no matter what where somebody's from or anything but like it's that. the stupidest thing in the world absolutely i agree with that so yeah. it's a so in it's europe a, they're trying to change that they're really actually, yeah they're trying to create a, uh, a a legal standardized honorarium that must be given to any exhibiting artist at mm. any institution so if they get exhibited they get 
a fee, let's call it. It may, it may not be the right amount, appropriate amount or enough, but it's a beginning gesture of that idea. But sadly, that idea in the arts is pretty common that uh, the artists should be honored to be exhibiting in XYZ location. Which is a system, it's a systematic issue that is way bigger than just art. And so, I, and, and at that point, I said, wow, so we've got these black artists, we've got these other artists of color who whose work is so important today and, and have been the Paris exhibition that W.E.B. Du Bois was a part of or Jacob Lawrence and them and the, just the, the Harlem Renaissance. If you look at Jacob Lawrence's migration series, it's fascinating because it's chronicling what black people are going through as they're trying to as they're in the Great Migration and they're leaving the South, going to the North, Midwest and West. And it's like that is so valuable. It's more valuable to the institution because they get to say, look at what we did. That's problematic. So a part of what I've tried to do with Black on Black Project is we come in. It's our space for the time that we're there. Now, who is included in the hour? The creatives. It's no longer your space because when we leave, what you're going to do is say, look at what we did. We did this thing. Look at our thing. And you're not going to talk about these artists. You're not going to talk about us. So while we're there, it's our space. And to go into from visual art to, you know, photography to doing these short films, you know, COVID-19, it's necessary. And I've, I've, I've always thought that walls were so restrictive because it's like we're in a room right now. These four walls. I mean, technically, yes, they are restrictive, but they also offer a wealth of opportunities. You could, you know, paint on them, draw on them break them down literally like you could do a lot with a wall but you're talking to a, a two-dimensional artist so I love walls because it's where I can hang my art so like you know don't think of that person but I think that but you don't need walls to do your work absolutely not no I mean you know in the grand scheme of, it's, as a metaphor walls are bad things absolutely but you know you need walls because it create because walls allow for a roof to be over your head in some situations right in some situations, they do. Is it your roof, or, oh, or is it somebody else's roof? That's like, always somebody else. Like that term, right? Think about it. When they say uh, we want to bring all the voices to the table, well, I don't want to go to your table. Well, okay. So let's get into this because, like, you're starting to like touch on all kinds of different sort of racial issues. That's basically. how my like brain the, works. Yeah, the whole like we, you, me, them, all this kind of stuff. I love it. I'm all about it. I want to hear more. I w- basically, I'm a middle-class white guy from America living in Europe, but I was raised in a very, I would call it a pretty racist, racially segregated neighborhood in the Washington, D.C. area. And basically, like, I don't know what's going on with all this. I've been a little bit out of the loop. I went into academia, and which, of course, has its own set of issues. And now I'm back out in the arts world proper. And of course, all these things are happening. You know, there's the pandemic. There's uh, all the different things that are going on with racial, whatever, injustice. I don't know what the right word is, because I I'm a probably a poorly educated when it comes to racial issues white guy. But the reason why I feel like I'm poorly educated is because I never really saw it as a problem. Like I thought I wasn't all that racist. I lived in the Middle East. I realized, okay, yeah, you know what? I am a little racist. I mean, it, you know, what the race is is kind of irrelevant, but I believe everybody has a little bit of racism in them against some other group. So the question is, is how can we try to 
do better, get past that, not notice that kind of stuff. So like my racism is now coming back to Wilmington and seeing the still existing, clearly defined neighborhood differences where you can literally drive from across one street and you go from a white neighborhood to a black neighborhood or whatever. I don't know what the ethnic divides are, the socioeconomic divides, but it still exists very, very clearly in Wilmington, even though, as you brought up, there was a race riot here in 1898 and yet and it's almost like it's like they don't want to even talk about it the state just recognized it in 2006 and it happened in 1898 yeah and it was rebranded as a riot in in white publications but it's a but it but it's a massacre well that's what i was gonna say so like there's different words the vernacular Mm -hmm. of what happened i heard i've heard riot i've heard massacre i've heard insurrection uh, insurrection there's a bunch of other different words where does it land now what's it currently called like so like i'm saying all kinds of wrong things right now i'm quite sure like i'm sure my vernacular is all like you're getting all upset probably at me i'm not getting upset because i think i think a lot of people just don't one of the problems we have and i learned this when i was eight years old is that we don't know how to communicate and words are very important and when you say riot you think Oh, spontaneous, something just happened and we just did it because that's like the definition. But I would also say unorganized. 100%. Yeah. But what happened in Wilmington was the opposite of spontaneous and unorganized. I mean, it was a statewide campaign that went on at least a year. There's a great documentary, Christopher Everett's Wilmington on Fire. Helen Edmonds wrote a great book called Fusion Politics. And the film that you just produced. Yeah, well, I'll get to me later, but what I, there's a lot of things that way before anything that I've ever done. And what happens today is a lot of these writers and creators don't go all the way back. Helen Edmonds' book about fusion politics that was written in 1951 is fascinating because it debunks this idea of what white people were calling Negro domination because black people were getting in politics. Well... Yeah, but it wasn't like the overwhelming majority. And I think that's one of the things that our short film, The Front Lines, looks at, is it takes these three parts of Wilmington's history and kind of just scratches the surface so folks can go dig some more. So we start with the Battle of Forks Road. In 1865, the Battle of Forks Road happened right over near where the Cameron Art Museum is. Fast forward to 1898, which happened like downtown Wilmington. And then you go to the Wilmington 10 case when they not only blamed this arson case against nine black people and one white person. But prior to that, three years, they shut down Williston High School, which is one of the most significant educational institutions in the history of Wilmington, North Carolina, because it was the black high school. And they shut it down in 68. What else happened in 1968? Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. So you've got all of this happening in the town. So that's why these events are important. And that's why people who have produced work before the likes of me, Larry Renee Thomas, wrote a book called The True Story on the Wilmington 10. He connects very, very easily. It's an easy through line. The founding of Wilmington as like Newtown, all the way to the to 1898 to the MLK stuff in 68 and then to the Wilmington 10 case in 71 and so 
I like to read. I read on average 25 books a year, all history related. So I want to take all of that and put it into art. So that's where that's the only creativity I have is, again, I go back to this a very basic premise. There's data and information. I want to work with talented people to help share that data and information. And the biggest skill I have is curating people. So I take a poet and a, a choreographer and dancer who've never met before. But I, I know this person. I know this person. And I say, we're going to make five of these short films about mental health and then about history. And we're going to like have these and share them with the community so that people can learn. And that's what I did with Johnny Lee Chapman III and Anthony Otto Nelson Jr., who are the featured performers in the Frontlines film. They met on a, a project we did about mental health called Break the Silence. It was a cold January morning and we were at Raleigh Little Theater. They met for the first time. And then that's where the magic happens because I know how to curate people and bring people together. So how do you get how do you help those people amplify their voice, refine their voice and their talent so then they can go off and now they can produce their own exhibitions and, and, and their own film projects and their own documentaries and stuff. That's that's the goal. What the goal of Black on Black Project has been is you want to put yourself out of business, essentially, because you want to help people solve problems and. All of this is so connected, so I need listeners to stay with me here because it all makes a lot of sense. I'm eight years old. I, the air is different at Wrightsville Beach. Why is that? I, I learned. so didn't understand that when you said the air is different, but I, I get what you're saying. Like the, the feeling of the community is very different. I think sure. it was Bertha Todd who coined the phrase local to here, Wilmington, of the, the riot mentality is because a lot of people like – heard about it in the in the within the black community okay well yeah i have to admit so i moved to wilmington i think in like 2001 i left by about 2010 something like that so i was here for approximately 10 years and i remember hearing about ro the riots the 1898 riots and while i was here was when the monument was was created down on was it north third north fourth something like mm -hmm. that um so like there was a beginning of these discussions and conversations happening in government and things like this, but I'll be honest, I, I don't, I'm not sure I'm 100% clear on what what really truly happened uh, in any of this. So you're pointing out these three circumstances that sort of have, so like I know the the coup, like at the time it was called a coup. Now it's called what was it called again? Now well, it was the only it's the only successful coup d'etat in the history of the United States on U.S. soil mm -hmm. yeah I know yeah that, that, I remember that part being the thing but I I think think I understand 1898 but those other two circumstances I, I have no idea what you're talking about so the Battle of Forks Road historians will tell you that if 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 Wilmington if the if the Union doesn't win Wilmington they may not win the war and so why is that significant well because the United States Colored Troops, which is roughly 180,000 of these black soldiers from all over the place, came together to help Lincoln and them win this thing. And significant to the Battle of Forks Road is all of these dudes, a lot of these dudes were from eastern North Carolina who ended up fighting here. And then a lot of them stayed after the war. Why is that significant to this area even further? Dude named Abraham Galloway. 
David Soselski wrote a great book about it, Abraham Galloway, called The Fire of Freedom. There's a plaque at Brunswick and 3rd Street in Wilmington about Abraham Galloway. And it's like this dude, talk about black agency, this dude was the man. And if it wasn't for him, I, I will argue this to the day that I die. If it wasn't for Abraham Galloway getting these uh, black men in New Bern, in the New Bern area, and, and, and the surrounding areas to, to sign up, to go and fight. I don't know that, that the Battle of Forks Road turns out like it does. And yes, there's a whole bunch of crap with the USCT and how they didn't get paid fairly and all this kind of stuff. But if it wasn't for those men doing what they did, the Civil War may not have turned out the way that it did. I can't say that for sure. But I know Ulysses S. Grant, Abraham Lincoln, people who didn't like black people, right, would say, yo, without them brothers, man, I don't know, you know. And Lincoln, if you listen to his second inaugural, he kind of gets into that a little bit. But Lincoln, you know, he was full of crap, too. It's really about the reason why these events in Wilmington are important is because without those troops and in in fighting in the Civil War, I don't know that the, the Union wins. Without 18, if 1898 does not happen, we might not have the Atlanta riots in 1906. We might not have the Red Summer of 1919, which was a lot of social unrest around the country. We might not have Tulsa being blown up in 1921 because there wouldn't have been this large scale of a model for white supremacists to follow. Because Wilmington, now Reconstruction is is. They've already deconstructed Reconstruction in 1898. Read Eric Foner's book called The Second Founding. He tells you, it's, it's very simple. 13, 14, 15 Amendment, great. By the mid-1890s, the Supreme Court said, oh, that's bullcrap. We don't have to deal with that. And Ulysses S. Grant gets all this credit. What did he do in 1877? The compromise. He said, well, all right, check this out, fellas. Pull the troops out of these southern cities and you promise me you'll leave black people alone. They're like, okay, nope. So all that work during Reconstruction, these multiracial governments, all of these things to protect black people get systematically pushed away, all because essentially of the Supreme Court. So you get to the end of the end of the 18th century, end of the 1800s. You're like, Wilmington still exists in this way with these black people that own these businesses and Thomas C. Miller and John Dancy and all these awesome just black people. George Henry White is an elected official like all these from New Bern, from the, the black second, as it's called in North Carolina, con- congressional district. So you're like, this is great. Alfred Moore Waddell, Charles B. Aycock, Josephus Daniels, all of these like Democratic white I- I- elites. Now, people understand Republicans and Democrats were basically the ideals swapped than what you see today. Go read about Goldwater in the 50s and you you can learn something about that. You can look that up yourself. But the bottom line is, if if they break down Wilmington, show put and I'm doing this in air quotes, put black people in their place, maybe black people in other other cities will say, well, we need to just go back to what it was when the planter class was in charge uh, during slavery and even right after slavery. So Wilmington is so important. You hear about Alabama, you hear about you hear about Selma, Montgomery, you hear about Mississippi, you hear about Georgia, North Carolina. I argue is just as or even more so 
influential when it comes to a lot of the systemic issues that black people face today because of things like the introduction of the grandfather clause, like, and I'll talk about that in a moment. I was going to say, please clarify that for me. Like the propaganda campaigns using political cartoons to show poor, illiterate white people how bad black people were. That's what a lot of these newspapers were doing in North Carolina. And Harper's Weekly was guilty of this too. And so if if North Carolina doesn't do that, I don't know that we end up in the space we are today. Probably because there's other southern cities and stuff like that. But North Carolina had a huge impact on all of these bad things that we see today. Well, my concern is is that you're the way I'm hearing you talk about this. So bear with me. Maybe I'm interpreting this wrong. So let, let clarify this for me. You're saying Wilmington is so influential, southeastern North Carolina, so influential in in basically helping to stop systemic racism or or sort of no perpetuate it. Okay, because Good. because okay. all of these I'm things like, are I'm happening. Like, I'm sitting here. I'm like I think this is an incredibly racist area like i would not say this is a model of good racial so model as in if you follow this model and the governor of georgia said this he said how do we suppress the black vote well we go ask the people in wilmington what they did okay so you're saying all of this stuff you're saying is basically how racially divided and systemic racism basically like i don't know again i don't know the right vocabulary is prevalent in this region and it's a sort of in the southeastern united states it's true it's more of a model of the wrong way to do it instead of like right ways to do it and north carolina is obviously home to a lot of uh, seminal civil rights moments the founding of SNCC at you know shaw university the student nonviolent coordinating committee right go look at supreme court cases involving busing and you'll go to Charlotte and you'll read about Julius L. Chambers. Like all of these North Carolinians who just did a whole bunch of a whole bunch of really, really, really good things. The Woolworth sit-ins in Greensboro. People know about that. Yep, that I know. You know, I mentioned Black Wall Street in Durham. What's interesting about North Carolina, and I'll go back to the grandfather clause, they said, well, we want to make black people, black men not to be able to vote, but what can we create that takes the race out of it? How do we take race out of it so we can beat beat what the Constitution says? Education. Land ownership. If your grandfather was allowed to vote, then you could vote. So well, that's the grandfather clause. Well, wait a minute. If my grandfather, we were in slavery. If it's if it's the late 1890s, well, and theoretically, that's a self-perpetuating thing that would continue to because if if at the what 1890s, their grandfathers w- couldn't vote, and then they can't vote at that time, they they will then have children that their grandfathers then couldn't vote also. So it's a self-perpetuating thing, really. That I, I'm not. I don't know if it would it would have applied to that. But if you if it's 1895, and your grandfather couldn't vote. They were saying, no, you can't vote. And it passed. I think it was the year was 1901, the legislature. So think about that. How incredibly intense and intentional do you have to be? Because you're like, we don't want poor white people not to be able to vote. We just don't want black people to be able to vote. North Carolina 
let me clarify that one more time. North Carolina has been a model of how to perpetuate systemic issues, exasperate them. There's also instances within North Carolina where black people can see, wait a minute, there's some agency about us because Abraham Galloway did his thing in the state. And David Zucchino points this out in his books, and you can go look at census, census record. In the mid-1890s, 126,000 registered black people okay. that could vote. 1902, that number is down to 6,100, roughly. Well, what sandwiched in between there? 1898. And so it's all the voter suppression. So when, when you hear people talking about these redrawing of districts every 10 years. So if you don't win the state legislature, guess what you can't do? You can't draw the districts in a more equitable way, which is why voting is important, right? And so you just look at this recent election, go look at North Carolina specifically, look at look at the General Assembly and just look at it and just, just study it. Uh, gerrymandering is a horrible thing. Whoever even came up with the concept of gerrymandering should be not admired let's just, i'll be polite about it like i mean just the concept of gerrymandering it's ridiculous it should just be as simple as here's a straight line and let's make a square these group of people vote together whatever it i mean it should be stupidly simple but they have made it so complicated and political and racial and economic and like i mean I, I'm not a political person, so I'm trying not to get into the political stuff. But, like, it's ridiculous, the whole issue of gerrymandering. I mean, no other country in the world does that kind of crap. Well, it's when I don't think. there's been a group in power and they start to see power slip. You got to kind of do what you what you got to do. Alfred Moore Waddell stood in Thalian Hall and gave a lot of speeches about suppressing the black vote, choking the Cape Fear with carcasses, and if you see a black person vote him, shoot him in his tracks. Like, that stuff happened. Go, go, UNC has got his papers online, you know, with all of, you can go read it. Go read all these things. And so, contextually, in the country, in the late 19th century, which would be the eight, late 1800s, what's happening to black people we think about Reconstruction and we say, man, but that was deconstructed it, 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 almost as quick as it started. So why do I love art? Because art, we can create a play. We can create a short film. We can write poetry. We can do dance. We can do portraits of these awesome, amazing black people and share all of this history. And people start to learn. I didn't know that. Wow. And it's like, Part of me is frustrated that we don't teach these things, but I'm glad we have art as a medium. And like I said, I grew up, I go to plays and opera and I'm wearing a tux at, you know, at the symphony. And I'm like, why am I here? Fast forward to early 2000s. I meet Maestro Curry, who was one of who was like the only black conductor in the South. That's amazing. So I'm like, well, where's everybody else? Then you learn about Beethoven and like where he got his music from. And it's like, holy smokes. Like there's a lot here. So this medium of art, it's so disarming that anybody with an open mind and who's curious can understand perspective. Okay. I love that you've brought it back to the arts because in the end, this podcast is about are the arts industry, the arts world, whatever you want to call it. So the the thing that I, okay, my, 
peeve about the arts world as a whole is is that okay I was in the Middle East so I was teaching young Muslim girls to produce art okay that was my job I worked at a university and, and that's what I who I taught and they often would turn in art what they you know their assignments and say like my work is about being a Muslim woman my work is about being a woman in a Muslim region whatever this kind of stuff and I kept trying to say to them that Art should be good, not good because you're a Muslim woman or because you're a woman or because you're Muslim or anything like this. The art should be good. It should affect people. It should engage people. It should do whatever its, its role is doing. And I feel that oftentimes I hear in Europe and in America a similar kind of thing because we often hear about like it's almost it's this subtle thing where we almost hear about like there's the art world and then there's the black art world. Why does there have to be a separation there? Why does there, like to me, quality art is quality art. I don't care if it's male, female, what gender, what race, anything like that. Good art's good art, period. But there seems to be this thing, I don't know if it's the media, I don't know if it's the arts industry itself, I don't know who's doing it or what, that separates out, and it's not just black art, it's also, you know, LGBTQ, whatever, plus symbol art. It's all the different... LGBTQIA+. Plus Thank you. I'm so bad with keeping up with that because he keeps getting longer and longer. But so, anyways, the, um, the it, I feel like like we're, we're actively segregating ourselves. So, like, I, I just have this feeling that, like, art should be art, period. It should not be black art or, or gay art or... Middle Eastern art or whatever, like quality art is quality art. So, but like, why do we feel, or is it us that's doing it? Or like, how does these separations even come about? I think that's a very sophomore way to look at it. And, and I say <laughs> and that's that, me. And I say that because of this, I'm not going away from art. I'm going to reference history, but it's all art. The first, na- the first immigration law was the Naturalization of Act of 1790 fact check it look it up all you want you had to be wealthy and white so anything other than that wasn't citizenship right so to be a citizen is to be white is essentially what you're telling us from 1790 so that transfers to music film art education whatever industry you want to be in I believe that's why people classify things in that way subconsciously because if it's, it's, it's white or it's other. And I think, and so, so that is the problem. So what happens is this is just me talking. So educated minds can certainly disagree. and, And I welcome that is in, is, is what we see as being the thing. It's the white thing. So then we're the other. I would like for people to say, well, I went to a historically black college, North Carolina Central University. There's pride in that because of why it was founded, because of the principles and all of that, and James E. Shepard and where he came from. But on the other hand, education is education. But we couldn't go to UNC, one of the most racist institutions in the history of institutions, right, on, on, at its founding, so America, these founding fathers are the ones who's, who started this whole white 
and other. So go be mad at them when we say, well, why is it black art or why is it female art? I'm not, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just. No, I'm suggesting we should be mad at them. Well, but I mean, yeah, I'm sort of. I take the position of like the past is the past. We made. Everybody in the world has made many stupid mistakes about something, you know, what, whether it's being racist or sexist or whatever kind of things. Like we've all done. That's existed in many cultures throughout the world, still exists in some cultures. But the qu- point is, is like, okay, now, what can we do better? differently now we have to acknowledge it all and so if if a if a muslim woman is like i make art about my experience that is their right that's what they want to do to your point about good art is good art yeah and no at the same time don't get me wrong i'm throwing all this information out keep in mind the the name of my podcast is wise fool so like (laughs) some things i'm very smart about some things i'm really stupid about and some of my my ideas are wrong like flat out wrong and so well i I don't know that wrong is the right word though and i think that's where i'm trying to get to is like i would look at William Paul Thomas is an awesome artist based in the Triangle that I've had the pleasure of working with. Amazing portrait artist. He painted a portrait of my daughter. He's amazing. And then there's another amazing artist that I've had the pleasure of working with, Pete Sack. Will is a black dude from Southside Chicago. Pete is a white guy, upper middle class white dude, right? Both of their styles are amazing and distinctive. Will primarily paints people that look like he and I. And it's phenomenal. Pete has the privilege of picking whatever subject he wants and he paints it. And it is phenomenal. It's up to us to not classify them as a black dude who's making black art versus a white dude who's making art. Right. Well, that's my point is like, so when my students would turn in works, they would start by defining the work first and foremost as female Muslim artwork. But my point is they can do that. It's up to us. Do we want to maybe put them in a box or not? But I appreciate that an artist says, this is who I am. This is my experience. This is what I make work about. If your mind, if our minds don't, go all the way up to the highest level that the elevator will take them for us to hear that as their description and as their feeling about their work. And we just want to box them in and say, well, we can't put them up against this other art because they box them. That's on us as curators and as individuals. Well, that's sort of my point is, is like, so when an artist sort of gives a, I don't even know, I'm so bad with the English language, like, so what is it, an adjective? Or like, what would be that that descriptor that you put before artists? So like, black artist, Muslim artist, you know, w- w- female artist. Like, that descriptor before the word art or artist, I feel like it, sh- it shouldn't be necessary. But some people see it as a sort of, maybe a badge of honor, or again, like you're talking about, like, they, they, giving context to the experiences you're about to engage with. I'll give you a great example. There's a painter. This person's work caused some controversy in Raleigh a a few years ago because it it was an an older white lady artist and most of the subjects were, were black women, younger black women and girls. And so people were, when they found out that it was a 
white artist who was older, all these questions happen. White woman or white man? White woman. Okay. All these questions arise because they're like, wait a minute. Well, this, 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 and this. I got a text when somebody saw the Facebook event for that exhibition opening. They thought the artwork was beautiful. And they said, is this one of the artists you work with, assuming they were a black artist? The question literally to me was, is this one of the black artists you work with? Because this is amazing. I'm like, no, I have nothing to do with this. And actually, this is an older white artist who's actually very good and very accomplished. But but there's some there's still controversy surrounding her work and how she talks about it and, and the appropriateness of it and all that. But the reason why, at least I believe that people want to know, this is a source of pride because it means something different historically across any industry. If a white person makes a thing that is about not that is about black culture, it means something different than if a black person makes a thing about black culture. Agreed. 100 percent. Just period. Yes. And you could be the nicest white person in the world and have all the it just means something a little different. And you, so you could even do like as a white person, you could even do a thing, a, a series of work about how white people are bad. But it's still not the right thing for it's, that. It's still not the same. Yeah. So I put it back to you and telling students, well, why do you have to put that description in front of Well, who who are you as the, the white American dude? It's true. Right? Yeah. But it goes, see, this is what people don't want to get into the weeds about. That goes all the way back to just education, period. There's a great book by James Anderson. It's called The Education of Blacks in the South. 1860, 1935, it breaks down public education. So black people essentially created the public education system. White missionary societies wanted to come down and say, hey, we'll educate you. And the Rosenwald Fund was like, yeah, we'll give you money and all this stuff. And there's just a problem when black people aren't allowed to educate black people. That's why there's a problem getting back to the front lines short film with with desegregating schools and shutting down the historic black high school and making the black kids go to these white high schools when tensions are high, but you make them go there. Some of the black teachers don't have jobs anymore. Black people can't participate in sports, ROTC, whatever they had been doing. That's why that's a problem because now Culture is missing. Your ability to be understood by your teachers because there's not that same connection is missing. It's going to cause problems. So me as a dude, I, I don't need to be teaching like women anything about women. I don't need to be doing that. That's not my role. That's not my place. If you take that model and you talk about art, I don't tell anybody what they can or can't create. I would only ask that you ask yourself a few questions. What is my true intent? And this, these can be kept to yourself. What is my true intent? Uh, am I going to honor the information that I'm trying to convey by trying to convey it in the best and most respectful way that I can? How am I going to serve the group that I am using as source material, essentially? How am I going to serve them? How is my work going to serve them? I would ask that anybody who makes anything about anything start with those three, three things as they're getting into it. And if you answer those three questions to your satisfaction, do what you will. 
Because really it's about being introspective. And so why are you asking these Muslim women about how they want to identify their work? Like, where does your thought process come from, right? Is it is it part, you know, sort of patriarchal in a way? And like how men, you know, is it like on top of that, is it white men? Like, is it education and how education has said that it's got to be this way? I will fully admit that I, at, at this point, in hindsight to my time there, I probably was a bit of an arrogant American white <laughs> male artist kind of thing in some ways. But in other ways, I don't think so because, wow, I'm going to come off sounding like a complete ass. As a, Have I already come off as an ass? I mean, okay. we're uh, people are people. I don't, you know, you know, <laughs> I feel like I've come off as an idiot, but the, um, when it comes to that, like I probably like, if I truly sat down and had to like the time and the wherewithal to like really put thought into my life, you know, I come from a place of white privilege, male privilege, Eastern United States privilege, like Northeastern like Washington DC ish. And I never really was forced to think about these things. Like the question you just asked, like, how do I represent my group? I, I was never really told I was part of a group because I'm a white man. Like, it's just a given that I'm part of a group. Like, we, we don't even talk about it. Like, it, 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 you know, when I was growing up, I'm 47 now. So like when I was growing up, it just wasn't discussed. It was just a given. You're you're the white man. You're the ones in power. You're the the most pr prominent kind of thing. And so, like, these were not discussions that we had. And now, of course, in the past thirty years, these are discussions that are becoming very important. And so, part of my thing is is like, like when it comes to art. So, like, let's get away from me personally because <laughs> it's quite uncomfortable for me. But the, 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 that's what I do. Uh, yeah, I know it's fine. No, no, I'm doing it too. I intentionally came to you for this purpose, but it's fine. the 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 thing about the the arts is, I feel like the arts is already so niche. The art, arts is already so difficult to approach in general. There's already this whole barrier to entry. People don't like walking into museums. They don't like walking into galleries. There's already these things that turn people away from engaging in the arts. So I don't care if it's visual arts, theater, mm -hmm. operas, whatever. And I feel like by continually then segregate, sub-segregating ourselves, as in like I make work about Muslim women or I make black art or I make, like in this case, we'll say I make white art, you know, kind of thing. Like, we're causing more problems because like I feel like the art should try to come together but and not split ourselves into smaller factions and so like it, that's possibly my perspective of ignorance being the male white you know role but that's sort of how I feel like I feel like arts should be together more because we are already a niche group and there's no reason for us to be then making ourselves even more divided but it's but art is a small part of the bigger picture and so when you think about we should all be able to come together just that statement right so whose table are we coming together at cuz that that makes a big difference 
Well, yeah. I mean, in most tables, it will be an institution or a foundation that which is of historically is absolutely racist, uh, white, prominent. And, yes. So, so until that stuff is addressed, we can't all come together because, and I've experienced this. I, I'm involved in so many different like uh, grant panels and all of this, and and I've seen with my own two eyes and with my own two ears somebody. Well, they went to this school. Well, they went to that school or that art school. They don't teach you anything over there. Wait a minute. Have you even looked at the artist's work? Have you read their state? Like, do you know anything about them, right? And so that is part of the problem. So we can't all come together unless everybody is coming at this from an equitable standpoint. Because if we are, then I, I can say that artist's work is really, really good. I'll give you a, a good example. I wrote a thing for a thing I was on. A thing for a thing. Uh-huh. And I don't think they used my essay because I gave the artist props, but I also gave the artist some things to think about because of the subject matter and the artist not necessarily realizing what they were tapping into because, to your point, it just wasn't their experience. And I'm like, when I look at this, I think about these other 22 things and not these four things that you're talking about. You do a really good job of conveying these four things, but this over here, let me tell you, this is where my brain goes. And I think it's amazing that my brain goes there. And they were like, well, that's not what the artist is talking about. And I'm like, cool. I acknowledge that, but this is where my brain goes. So until we're able to say, all of this kind of makes a lot of sense. So how do we break down the walls, which is why I hate walls, so that we can hear each other and see each other a little bit better. And we have to start with the same information. Why is calling it a riot messed up? Because it takes away from the planning that these white supremacists did to do what they did on November 10th, 1898. Okay, that's why it's important. So if we all have the same data, we might be able to say, okay, I do get your perspective now. My lived experience tells me something different because I never had your perspective. But now that I have your perspective, boom, I get it. I don't know if I can agree with it yet because I still have to do some unpacking. But I have a better understanding of your perspective, which is going to help me make a better decision when... A Muslim woman is telling me that her art is about her experience as a Muslim woman. I might not say to her, if I'm if I'm Matthew Doles, I might not say to her, if I'm the professor, I might not say to her, well, why do you want to say that you're a Muslim woman making work about this? I may say, you know what? Help me understand that a little bit more. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm I feel like I should defend myself for some reason. I don't know why I feel like because that's defensive. how some, sometimes that's how like. That's how you know, know you're having a good conversation because white people are like, oh no, let me let me tell you how I really am. I know, but well, no, but uh, the, okay, wait, okay, let me just clarify, like uh, spe specifically on the students in in the UAE thing. It's not that I have a, any problem with anybody making art about their own personal experiences. I'm all for that. What I don't like is the need to put the descriptor before the art. So like the art, the topic of the art, the subject of the art, the meaning of the art totally can be about 
their personal experiences. And that's really, to me, what really art all is. So I'm all for that. I just don't like the fact that they feel the need to put the descriptor first, such as female Muslim artist, black art, things like this. But like, why is that? It's that descriptor. But, but why don't you like that? Like, why do you even care? Because I don't feel it's necessary and I feel it causes more problems than it solves. Problems for whom? This is an empathy interview we're doing right now. I know. Right? No, no, this is good. I'm, I'm all for this. The problem for who? Problem for the whole arts community in terms of like relating to each other, being able to get past these labels. Okay, but wait, that was really bad. I said get past. I shouldn't say get past because that's not the thing. I had this conversation with Rhonda Bellamy and we figured out like get past is not the right vocabulary for this. So it's not get past. We should be able to be better than that. We shouldn't need these things. So we got to make sure everybody understands why some people may feel the need to do that. So one of the big problems I've seen in American history is that we don't, we always say we're going to give voice to the voiceless, which to me is the most disrespectful thing in the history of things. Well, not only that, but you said we're going to. Well, who's the we? The we is the white man who's allowing somebody who's not the white man to do something. A hundred percent. So everybody understands that. That's exactly what I'm saying. So how do we, as a society at large now, give agency to people to say, I am this, I make work about this because I want to talk about how that has affected me and who I am. And we don't have to. Music is a great example. There's hip hop, rap, pop, all these things. At some point, the more popular somebody gets, they kind of leave hip hop and they become a pop star. Well, who in the devil does that? Jay-Z is a rapper. That, that, that's how we learned about him. He's, now, he's become more than that, I would argue, but he's a rapper. At some point, he sold a lot of records, and people, oh, he's a rock star. He's a, well, wait a minute. Oh, he is not a rock star. What, what, a lot of people would, 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 would argue with you on that. Or Kanye is a better example, maybe, because Kanye would tell you before the last couple of years of Kanye that, you know, well, why is the aspiration to be a rock star? Well, because rock is a white thing. So we, we got to let, pe we got to not put labels on people. Because we put the labels on them, then we ask them, why do you want to label yourself that? Well, wait a minute. I've been taught my whole life, maybe subconsciously, that like, so I, I think it's an interesting, this is a fascinating conversation. I told you it was going to be like this. Are you having fun? Because I think that like, how do we, as a society at large, how do we figure out how to respect each other, how to give each other space, how to learn from one another? And then take all that information, and then if we find ourselves sexist, prejudiced, xenophobic in our thoughts, how do we not let those thoughts come out in words or actions, and then how do we begin to unpack that and sort of get those thoughts out of our brains? James 119, 
swift to hear. That's James 119 is something in the Bible. Yeah, I was just clarifying from the Bible, yes. <laughs> swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Be quick to really, really hear what somebody's saying and understand them. Slow down before you speak so that we say it the way that we intend to and with purpose and with kindness and love. And then let's not get angry. Let's be slow to be angry, slow to wrath. And I think bringing it it all back to this project, The Front Lines, this short film about three pivotal events in Wilmington, the Battle of Forks Road, 1865, 1898 in Wilmington is referred to as the 1898 massacre. Some people call it the 1898 insurrection. It has been called a riot, which I would argue that people shouldn't call it that. It was a more than a year long white supremacist campaign. And then the Wilmington 10 case of 1971, which in all honesty, I know nothing about literally. Yeah, like that's the, a whole nother podcast. Yeah, the uh, first thing I heard about it was when I was looking up you and, and everything about the, the film and all this stuff. I was like, and I'm like, what is this thing that happened in 1971? Yeah. You should get a hold of Larry Renee Thomas's book, the true story behind the Wilmington 10. Uh, there's a book by Kenneth Jenkins uh, about the Wilmington 10. A lot of people say that book doesn't go into enough detail but he, he's got a book about it and it's, it's it's not bad give me give me a reader's digest version of it like a short little summation like what happened so you may have heard of civil rights activist benjamin chavis ben chavis so he was somebody who he was young at the time but he would go around and help students organize help black people organize in the civil rights movement and when they shut down williston high school in 1968 like i said they sent all these kids to these other high schools and New Hanover uh, being one of them. And the kids weren't being treated fairly. You know, you know, they, they had to they had to like sort of integrate into this white space. Their teachers aren't there anymore, as I alluded to. They can't be do RO things like ROTC, just things aren't right. So the students were fed up and they wanted to do something and they wanted to protest. And they wanted to say we want like equitable treatment essentially and so gregory congregational united church ended up being a headquarters for them and they had a social worker from up north who came down who was the white woman in the group to help them and they had benjamin chavis so it was eight high school students plus this activist ben chavis and plus uh, the white social worker and they were combined they were combined they were charged with arson because because of the unrest because of the unrest mike's groceries ended up getting firebombed and so they were like charged with arson and sentenced to a combined total of 282 years and so it's fascinating sounds familiar yeah and you can read all about it the new hanover county library's got a bunch of stuff about it all the newspapers wrote about it james baldwin wrote an open letter to jimmy carter about this whole thing i mean it's a big 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 deal what I think people, and there's a bunch of litigation, and they ended up, Bev Perdue, finally, as her last act, was like, nah, we're not, we're not having this. Finally. But it took all those years. And the, the thing that really irks me is, I remember all this was unfolding, the news coverage of, of Bev Perdue saying, okay, we got to get this off the, off the books, because th- this is stupid. Charges were, had been dropped for years, but like the they didn't get their like they records cleaned. The thing that kills me is about this is when you take away that black institution, Williston High School. That's part of the beginning of this. So when you strip away black excellence, and you force black people into places where they're not welcome, 
and desegregation. So Brown versus Board of Education happened in 54. Well, what did the Supreme Court say with deliberate speed? I mean, and take your time, whatever you whenever you want. So it comes around in 68. They close Williston. Now, other black students had already started going to other schools in the area. Yeah. But to close the black school, why not just spread all the kids around at all the high schools? Why close the black school? Of course, that's going to upset black students and black parents. And in the history of North Carolina, you can look at Raleigh when the Holt family tried to desegregate schools in Raleigh in 54. Similar things happened with the courts being being stupid. And then Raleigh ends up desegregating in 1960, I believe. So art is an easy way to bring this information to us, to present this data to us. And then we can begin as just regular citizens unpacking it and understanding it. Now, what we do with the data is on us. But my number one goal is to say, here's data and information. If you want to feel bad, if you want to feel, you know, sad, if you want to be defiant, that's on the individual. But here's the data and the information. And historically, we see patterns that just are obvious. Okay. What I'm feeling is that I thought I understood all of this. I say this. I thought I understood my position in in the world and having traveled and lived in multiple countries and stuff I've realized that like I have no idea what my position in the world is Um, so my question for you would be okay I've basically come on this recording that I've produced and I'm going to put it out into the world basically showing that I'm a possibly a racist idiot so (laughs) I, I I would not say that. Okay, but, so I didn't okay. sound that bad. I feel like I sound, I feel like my face is all flush, and like I feel embarrassed for even having my positions. Like like. So here's what we got to get people to understand. We're all on this journey of understanding. Right. So as long as people are on their journey. If it's I'm I'm flush, I'm red faced, I feel like an idiot. That's part of the journey. Like we've all been there. Okay. Well, how about this? From your perspective, what am I doing wrong, thinking wrong, or seeing? Maybe wrong's the wrong word for it. But like, what could I do to be better about this? Smarter about it? More intelligent about it? More educated about? Is 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 the is the issue? data which is your thing or is it ignorance is it intentional is it actually like people are just racist and we just like you know and i don't mean racist like black white racial you know fights and stuff like but i mean like others you know just like any other other than your own tribe or your own community like just against others like so what is it like what can be done to make it so that basically this conversation that we just had doesn't have to happen again. I think that's the problem. I think everybody wants to fix something as opposed to continue to learn and dialogue about something. I think these conversations have to happen because yes, I am a guy. I'm a man. I want to fix things. Yes. No, I have <laughs> my been wife there. constantly complains about if that. I, I want to fix my wife will tell me about something and, and I'm that she's dealing with in her work career business. And I'm like, Oh, we'll just do this. You didn't ask me that. So why am I offering that, right? So I think our innate inability 
to understand that we are not fixers. We're just simply people who want to understand things better. So the number one thing I would say to people, there's two things. Be curious. So just because your grandma told you something or your favorite professor told you something, look into it. Look into it. Study it. Read about it. There's too much information at our fingertips today for us not to do that. Start with W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction. It's a 700-plus page book. Go from there. I will put links to all of the books and and authors that you've mentioned in the show notes. So then I think the other thing, and this is probably the first thing and the more more important part. Every day, and I heard the great... The great author and entrepreneur and business person and record exec and boxing promoter Jay Prince say this. We have two. If we wake up, that means we have two things. We have chance and opportunity. So I have another chance today because I woke up and I have choice to make. Not opportunity, but choice. Chance and choice. I have a chance today because I woke up and I have choices I can make. And look in the mirror. When I look in the mirror to brush my teeth every day, twice a day, I hope people brush their teeth twice a day. I know we're in, you're not going to the dentist twice a year because of COVID-19, but brush twice your teeth. Twice a year? I was told once a no, year. No, I, I, I I've gone twice, twice a year religiously. Okay. That's why my teeth look so great. Oh. They do. And I think, ask yourself those questions. How am I going to be better? I have the chance because I woke up. What choices are, am I going to make? Am I going to read the MSNBC headline and say, all those darn Republicans are just racist. Am I going to read the Fox News headline or the, the Trump TV, you know, that's going to be coming soon probably and say are those Democrats and those liberals, the, 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 the far left liberal wing, or am I going to say that person goes to the grocery store and buys quinoa just like I do? That person eats kiwi with a spoon just like I do, okay? So we have something in common. Let's focus on that so I can get to know them and understand. And then I will see what our differences are, but I might not look at them as differences. They just may be things that are unique about them, about that person. And they may be consistent in that person's group, maybe or maybe not, because people aren't monolithic. And I think once we start to ask ourselves those questions and do a deep dive, we'll know how to treat other people. But if we don't challenge ourselves, And this is not an overnight thing. This is going to take centuries. But we got to start asking ourselves these tough questions. Like, I was challenged recently by something, and I had to, it wasn't, it wasn't true, but I had to, I had to ask myself, have I always approached things in the right way? And that's hard to do. But, well, you, but my you, answer is no. I have never not approached many things, and we're not going to be perfect. How do we try to be more consistent? That's what we got to do. It starts with us. It starts with me and how I view, how my view of you as like a white dude who lives in Europe. What's the first thing that comes to my mind? I have to think about that, and I have to challenge myself on that. That's what I'll say. Do you have some bias against me for being white dude living in America, in Europe? You're just the person sitting in front of me, so that's the example I used. Okay, I was like, is there something I should know? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm fine with it. I, it doesn't bother me. I'm just sort of fascinated that the example was what you used. You're right know. in front of me. I mean, I got to tell you, if, uh, you know, if James Baldwin was in front of me, I would have used him as an example. Okay, fair enough. That's fine. There's a great book by Michael Eric Dyson. 
and it's called What Truth Sounds Like. And he basically breaks down a conversation between RFK and Robert F. Kennedy, who was the attorney, attorney general in 1963 when his brother was president of the United States. He breaks down a, a, a meeting between Baldwin and a bunch of other intellectuals at the time, a bunch of like writers and creatives. Lorraine Hansberry was there. But this is who sticks out to me, Jerome Smith, one of the original freedom fighters. And RFK couldn't wrap his mind around why Jerome Smith. Let me let me say this again, because I want people to hear this. RFK couldn't wrap his mind around why Jerome Smith, a freedom fighter, said to him when asked, why why would you why wouldn't you go to war for your country and jerome smith said because this country has not gone to war for me i mean yeah i fought for this country but look well look at what this country has done to me and rfk was just baffled couldn't understand it but when rfk years after that does some introspection he realizes crap yeah and i've been a part of the reason why we've not fought for people so then you watch his ultimately ultimately he died in pursuit of being president of the united states but if you think about that that's the type of introspection we need and he certainly could have done more introspection he and his brother and of course lyndon lyndon johnson also lyndon baines johnson but if we look within that's where it starts introspection i'm going to be a better person if i look at myself and figure out if slash how i am pick one of the things prejudice you know racist sexist whatever in this in in the micro ways like microaggressive right or on the more macro things then we will figure out this art thing because this art thing is just a small speck as a, a part of this larger problem. That's a mic drop. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's God. I mean, I want, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so bad if I say like probably the truth of it, like what I want is to a certain extent like somebody to give me a, a roadmap, say like, okay, do these things and everything will be better. Whatever that is. I don't know, you know, I don't know what it is, but like a roadmap. But that's not gonna happen. It can't happen. It I know should that. It, and it and it shouldn't happen. Everybody wants this like easy way out. Like But but I always want easy. It has nothing to do with like racism or anything like that. I always want the easy way out. That would be <laughs> but that would be our problem, I think, as human beings. Yeah. Is yeah. we we tend to it's hard not to eat that second cupcake, right? Well, I will always choose the thing I can put in a microwave over the thing I have to put on the stove. I will choose the easy way. Right. Like, so this, this is not like a philosophical thing. Right. No, like, no, no. It's, it's, just it's, like, very, it's a very basic principle. Yeah. Right? So I'm glad you said that. I will always buy bread at the store versus hand make my own bread. Those TV dinners, they're efficient. They get the immediate job done. Eat TV dinners every day for 20 years and see what happens. You will die before 20 years. <laughs> right. And so there's so many different directions we could take this too. But I think that if we if we take our time to try to get this. So I'm sick of people talking about the moment of George Floyd. There's not a moment at all. And so art institutions have to 
understand they have to go way, way, way back. Start from there and work your way forward. And it's going to take a long time. And along that way, talk to black folks who have been there and done that and worked to to try and change things and have them help you if they're willing. Well, okay. Something that I keep thinking about, it's funny. I wrote this little note down just now because it's something that I experienced when I started being an expat. So when I left the United States, worked in Middle East and, and in Europe, I was being, uh, yeah, I wouldn't call it like racially profiled, but profiled by where, what country I originated mm. from and segregated out of opportunities. Specifically, I'm thinking, well, actually, no, both places. So there are certain opportunities that were available that were not available to me as an American. So it had nothing to do with male or white or anything like that. It was just as an American, I did not have opportunities in the Middle East or in Europe that Europeans or Middle Easterns mm-hmm. would be offered. And I remember thinking like, my God, this is just like racism in America. And and so, but my point being is, is that I feel like a lot of these racial things, like specifically racial things are an American thing, specifically American Southern thing, but American thing. Whereas if you were to go to Europe, Europe is much more accepting of generally a lot of different cultures more so than America is. So I feel like specifically when we come to this divide of the black-white divide, it is much more an American thing than the rest of the world. Because a lot of times, like I'll be in Europe and people just, it's normal to have people of many different ethnic backgrounds all sort of hanging out together, many different countries and all this kind of skin tones, whatever we want to put to it. But in America, it's, it's a bit more obvious. Like my wife is Czech and so she constantly looks at American TV and movies and news and is like, why is it black America this, black American that? Whereas in in Europe, a person from Africa would be called an African because they're they're designated by their country, not necessarily by their skin tone or anything like this. So this issue I feel like is is different in America than it is in other countries, specifically about the black experience versus white experience. We're just going to talk about the two of us here. We're not going to talk about everybody else. I would say two things to that as we as we close. Chattel slavery in the United States, to the extent, was something you didn't see anywhere else. Say it again. Chattel slavery in the United States, to the extent that it happened, is not something that you could see replicated elsewhere in this same fashion. I'm not sure I even meant her, understood what you said. Chattel slavery. So what does that mean? Okay. Yeah, so I don't I, even understand. People, that. I want people to go look that up. Okay. I, I ask people to do work because when you are taken from a place and then you're, they try to strip you of everything and give you new things, you're not gonna be. It's not gonna be called. You're not. You're not gonna be African. It's gonna be black. Right? Like that's just. That's number that's that's number one. And it's not an easy thing, I don't believe, to understand either. So I'm not I'm saying like a lot of people don't understand that because when you go overseas, sometimes people are like, what? Like, why? So I would encourage people. There's a there's there's a couple different books. One is called Inhuman Bondage by Brian David Bryan. And I think I think his name is Brian David Bryan or it's 
David Brian Davis is one of those two. Inhuman Bondage is the name of the book. And then Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States because gets it gives you the details of what slavery in the United States, even after the international slave trade is banned in the early 1800s, like was this thing. And you go from producing hundreds of thousands, I'll just talk about cotton for a second, like pounds of cotton to millions of pounds and it's being exported. Like it's a, it's a whole different, it's a whole different ball game. That's and sugar plantations as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it used to, it was rice, sugar, then, then, then and tobacco, then cotton, just like boom. And I think in, in this area where we are right now, it was like rice for a long time. And, and I think once people understand the extent of slavery in the United States, it's like, oh, that's why. So slave patrols were created in the early 1700s. Great book by Sally Haddon, a professor, about slave patrols. And literally the function was to go find slaves who were run away or just black people. And so you look at legislation throughout the years during slavery times where it's like Fugitive Slave Act and, you know, you can add a state. You got to add a slave state and a free state, like all this stuff that helps you understand why the conversation is like it is. It, at least it begins to. No, I get it. It makes sense. Like So what you're saying is because of the fact that the foundation of all of this stuff, well, let's say like even the foundation of up quote unquote America started because African people were torn out of their home countries and uh, forced over into a different country that that's a be sort of created from the get go, a, a completely different dynamic than let's say Europe where there maybe, maybe there was some of that, but not nowhere near as much as in the Americas. Yeah. I mean, I mean, American slavery. So the, the crazy thing about slavery and we don't have time to get into this, yeah, but it, say, of course it doesn't, it, it doesn't start with, what we know it as today. I mean, it starts with, you could go way back to like, you know, the Slavics, like where does the, even the term come from, right? Like the root word. It we could, can go back to the Egyptians and like their it, slaves. It, it, <laughs> it, you can go way back. What America did, what we know now as to America, as America, what it did was just, uh, just different. And it's embedded in every aspect of our lives today. Like the effects of it. That's why this is so complicated. That's why you can't just talk about art or music or food or farming or, you know, astrophysics, right? Because it's all embedded. You can't just talk about banking because you're like, well, how come no black people lead any of the big banks? And then you go down these roads and you're like, oh. And so it's, it's all a part of it. Now, what can we do? I'll say it again. We all have to look ourselves in the mirror and my goal is to take all of this data, share it through art, and then that's when you say, oh, okay. Exhibition in Wilmington we did a couple years ago was called Paradigm Shifts of Public Spaces. What's a public space? A space that we're all supposed to be welcome. What's a paradigm shift when something changes and it's dramatically different? You close down the black high school. That's different. You tear out the black business. That's, that's a paradigm shift. And now this is what we're left with and we have to scramble. Art can help you unpack that, and that's why we do what we do.
All right. That was really good how I just like brought that to a T. It was like beautiful. Brought my boys I can down. Ed- I can edit out this little last bit. We're doing, I'll leave you with a, a mic drop on that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just say, this has been a lot of fun and educational. Part two, so, man. Yeah, thank you. Part two's coming up. We can do this again if you'd like. Part two's coming up. Yeah. I'm telling you. I, see I will it. come with smarter questions. No, I won't sound so talk. stupid. We just talk, you know? <laughs> Not that I came with questions, but thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was <laughs> podcast world. I got to edit in a little thank you at the end. You don't have to, have to say thank you to me. I'm, I should say thank you. Thank you.